Hey folks, we are pleased to present the following year-end review episode, but this is another one where only the first half is going to be released to the public at all. If you know now that you'd like to hear the whole thing, go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You can either sign up for Partially Examined Life Citizenship or sign up to be a Patreon supporter. Either way, we'll get you the full version of this discussion. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for living, but then thought better of it. Episode 182 is a freeform look back on 2017, a state of the podcast check-in where we can discuss things we didn't get to, topics we'd like to delve into further, and other items of miscellany. This is Mark Linsenmeyer sitting twixt drum set and undated child's drawing of snowman in my basement in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, half-submerged in the split-level basement office in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allen in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey before Three Apples in Middleton, Wisconsin. Three Apples. I have a little painting that I've always liked that I bought when I lived in Easton, Maryland, of three apples, two <laughs> Granny Smiths, and a red one, and a still life. <laughs> I learned then that somehow I really liked still lifes. I never knew that. Two Granny Smiths and a red one? And a red one. Is it a red delicious? Is it a... It is definitely not a red delicious, but it's hard for me to tell because Granny Smiths are so iconic, right? They're all green. Mm. But, you know, the red ones are tougher to tell. It looks like it might be a gal or Johnny Gold on the side, but (laughs) I wouldn't swear by it. So, Wes, you're not going to share anything about your environment? Tell us where you are right now. I'm in my room. There's nothing. You have no landmark. I, I'm beginning to think you're actually an AI, that you're not in a room at all. That's right. I haven't seen you in quite a while. This is Wes Alwyn in the cloud in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> so let's start this on a uh, highly informative note. That's my suggestion. I don't, <laughs> I don't have a piece of information I especially want to start with. <laughs> This is the kind of witty banter that has made us famous. <laughs> Perhaps we should begin with a review of the topics we covered this past year. So what was your favorite podcast we did this year, Seth? My favorite podcast was Spinoza on biblical criticism. I enjoyed the Society of the Spectacle, the Baldwin readings, and the Rorty. But I guess Spinoza is probably dearest to my heart. It actually is one of the things that came up when I was looking at the year in review was how our agenda this year was shaped in many respects by external factors. I mean, I think we're becoming more and more driven by political and social events, but with a healthy dose of traditional good old philosophy. And this year, when I looked back at our list of what we'd had actually covered, Spinoza, I think is probably the most solidly situated in the Western tradition. It definitely seems like the trajectory this year was dictated by what was happening externally, which is maybe a commentary itself on the nature of philosophy being somehow abstracted from the moment and ahistorical. What do you mean by Spinoza being the most situated in the tradition? And then what do you mean by determined by external factors? Determined by external factors was that we started the year off after the election of Trump in the United States, and that dictated in many respects. We had a free-form political discussion. We had Rorty. We had Orwell. 
We had Baldwin, we had white privilege, we had society of the spectacle. So there was a sense in which the beginning of the year, especially the topics that we chose and what we chose to read was dictated by external factors, or at least influenced. How's that sound? And then Spinoza being situated in the traditional Western philosophical tradition, we read Confucius, Boethius, Orwell, the episode on Dr. Drew, Native American philosophy. We read Adam Smith. We did an episode on Blade Runner. And so thinking about a charter of the traditional philosophical subjects, you know, the usual suspects, Spinoza is very solidly in the middle of what is traditionally considered the canon as opposed to the things that we covered this year as a philosophy podcast. Well, we definitely moved into different areas, more politics and more film. But I think some of that was just driven by our interest. I'm not so sure. So for me, it wasn't about Trump getting elected or the political climate in the country that I wanted to do that stuff. I just wanted to branch out into those areas. The Spinoza part, I have to think about. We've done some other seminal stuff, Nietzsche and Smith and all that. There are three things that happen. One is just because we've gradually gotten through a lot of the seminal, essential philosophical works, I feel like we're a little more open to things that are philosophy adjacent, but historically vital. So even just starting with the Tocqueville on election time, you know, that was specifically time to, yes, that's true. to meet up with that. And then doing the Darwin, even doing the Spinoza itself, because so much of it was about biblical criticism, which is something that three or four years ago, I probably would have poo-pooed and, and probably did. The ethics is so much more straightforwardly philosophical. So a book like Wealth of Nations or Darwin's The Origin of Species, or even the one that we just did on Arendt, these are fat books that are not laid out. It's not like reading a tight philosophical argument. It's a matter of approaching these idea-filled texts and trying to figure out what philosophically can we take from those. Now that we're open to that, there are many, many other possibilities as well. I've always thought that that was what we always were supposed to be doing. And <laughs> and uh, I, I guess maybe I just misunderstood. <laughs> I always felt like as a philosophy podcast, it was philosophically reading things or keeping in mind philosophy or a certain kind of disposition with respect to reading texts that were worth reading or processing things that were worth processing, as opposed to reading treatises that were self-consciously about philosophy. I mean, of course, we do a lot of that stuff, and I think it, there's all the right reasons to do it, but I always felt like calling ourselves a philosophy podcast and that we just always had a strong streak of doing that, of examining things, as opposed to worrying too much about whether it was philosophically thick enough. Yeah, I share that. I think that's kind of a St. John's influence. Well, maybe that's true. You know, yeah, it, there's seminar and you read everything and there's almost a sort of prejudice against making these distinctions and just reading what's worthy and talking about it. If you're doing it reflectively, then in some sense there's a philosophical element to that. But that's one of the reasons why I like pushing out into other areas, including film. I think it's just as good a basis for what we do is, you know, as a traditional philosophical text. Well, and often even better, right? Because those kinds of texts don't always, but can often have lines of thinking and tendrils that, if incomplete, lead to a lot of good thinking. And that's one of the things that I think that we also do on the podcast that maybe 
was fanned a little bit by having such a diversity of topics is doing thinking on the podcast as opposed to being self-consciously pedagogical or trying to spread the word about philosophy or something like that. that that's something that I, I've thought that we've always done and I, maybe I've just gravitated to filtering the compliments that we get on those terms, right? The ones that talk about how they were prompted to think about something or had engaged with either a text or an idea in a way that they hadn't before from our fans. I take that to be a compliment less about our pedagogical explanation of something and more about the way in which we openly think and talk about the books that we're reading or the films that we've watched. I guess I don't agree that the not straightforwardly philosophy episodes are better in terms of thinking. In fact, I see them as pretty self-consciously supplementary. So like one of our best loved episodes, our No Country for Old Men episode, where we first got into this, to me that is almost entirely parasitic on the fact that we had already covered some existentialism and we'd covered Nietzsche and it was a way of making these ideas that we've already talked about in some other way more concrete. So it's the same, you know, we did Dostoevsky's The Idiot this year. And yes, Dostoevsky's flavor of existentialism is not quite the same as Jasper's or Heidegger's or Nietzsche's or Sartre's or de Beauvoir's or Levinas's, if you want to count him, or Buber's. So it's adding something new, but I wouldn't use that as the introduction. Mark, did you take any lit crit, just straightforward lit crit classes in college? No. I'm just curious, because you could read the text without ever self-consciously appealing to some philosophical theory, right? You could read and have a conversation about the text. And you could talk about existentialism. Yeah. I mean, there'd be a ton to talk about in Dostoevsky without ever appealing to existentialism directly. And I would double down on that and say that you could spend a lot of time talking about existentialism without using the word existentialism and not even know you're talking about right. it, having read right. The Idiot. So I guess I had an experience in high school and early college taking not philosophy courses like my Great Books of the Far East course and my uh, Classic Civilizations course where I felt like it was almost too easy that you could get an A on any essay by just kind of saying anything the least bit insightful. <laughs> Whereas with philosophy, there was actually more or less a right answer, not a specific thing that you had to put down, but a more specific method, a more specific kind of analysis that would filter out just, you know, intellectual bullshitting. Uh, no, something, here's something I've been musing from really determined thinking. And so that's one of the things that attracted me to philosophy and making me feel like rather than trying to figure out from a book like, Brave New World, which is one that we'll probably do coming up here. Uh, but that's one of the first ones, you know, back in the day when I read that in high school, where I felt like, yeah, I would rather have the essay that boils down the philosophical point than this roundabout way of talking about it. Just, just because the philosophical issue is what I was most interested in. If I was really interested in, you know, I don't do that on my music podcast, because I'm interested in the craft of music. I'm a little less interested in how exactly does the author use symbolism to convey blah, 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 the kind of things that I would talk about in high school English class. That just had less immediate appeal to me. I had less feeling when I was writing in that vein that I was actually discovering something, that I was onto something really elating. Yeah, I think that's the difference. So someone like me, I, I, I like the bullshitting. I like the intellectual. I like essays and more free form, 
not just the end result, but reading literature as literature, even though, you know, we sort of, I remember people at St. John's who I think they had transferred from other colleges and probably had taken real lit crit classes. And they thought what we did was kind of at St. John's was not what they were used to. Our literature seminars were more ended up being philosophy of literature classes without appealing directly necessarily to philosophical texts, but appealing to any of the texts that we, the, the different texts we had read at St. John's in any different subject. We were always trying to relate all of them. They were all in the shadow of Socrates. <laughs> yeah. I remember another student saying, this is ridiculous. You guys here never read literature as literature. So maybe I'm, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm just thinking of close readings of texts and it might be a very different, at least now, especially a different experience in the English department reading, say, Dostoevsky, where you'd spend a lot of time on historical background, or, I mean, it, it depends on the leaning of the department, but also on maybe hardcore literary theory, and a lot of that is very socially conscious stuff. So anyway, what's important is that we still don't even agree on the format of the podcast. I think that's the important if we come to that agreement by the very end of the journey, then maybe that'll be something. But. There's a live tension. Maybe part of it you see in the variety of texts we pick. You know, everybody is making suggestions, right? And we come to a kind of group agreement on what to do, but we're pretty flexible on that. You're pretty open to doing stuff, especially if it's interesting. Yeah, someone actually asked me how we pick what text is going to be next. And I said, well, we just sort of, you know, we have a list, you know, we have a little bit of a discussion It depends on who's, you know, someone might be very passionate about doing something at a given point and that it's kind of very organic and relaxed and it doesn't, there's not this very formal process and that surprised them. It's not like we make a list of, okay, these are all the great works of philosophy and we must hit these ones and, you know, we prioritize them and this and that. It's just not, that's just not how it works. It's more about the, the same sort of process you'd go through when you were deciding which book to pick up off your shelf to read and enjoy. That's one of my most favorite things about the way we pick topics is we let the things that we've been working on most recently educate what we're going to do next. And we do have these little streaks of topics. And I really like the fact that we're open to extending a topic or sometimes cutting it short based upon how we're liking it. I mean, the, the next one is a perfect example. We were going to do one episode on free speech and liberty in general. And then we said, well, why don't we do on liberty on its own and then follow it up with another podcast doing some other stuff, mainly because we were finding it interesting. Well, that was my point, was not to say you know, that I want to only study strictly, technically philosophical things and recreate you know, several hundred years of traditional uh, university education on this podcast. My point was that, just like Dylan said, we're, we were influenced by the zeitgeist to take our topics and our discussion in a certain direction this year. And that's all that struck me, was that part of the thing that we have to recognize is that we experience this podcast linearly in time, and that there's a small subset of people that do as well. But we're creating... <laughs> a kind of green field of content around philosophical topics that people can dip into constantly and that they do, right? I mean, we still get in a tremendous amount of traffic on older episodes, six years old, five years old, seven years old. And so the more in which we're influenced by topical things to cover, let's just say, 
zeitgeist-driven subjects, the more we have to make sure that we balance the fact that we're motivated to cover these topics now or these subjects now with the kind of approach that we take, what it is, as Dylan said earlier, that makes us attractive to people, which is the open approach to it, the discussion, so on and so forth. Does that even make sense to you? Uh, Yeah. I mean, for me, so many of our topics are ones that have been hanging out for years that I feel like we just we just haven't gotten to this yet. And that's why, you know, like I was saying, like James Psychology is another one. It's not straight ahead philosophy and it's a really long book. And so I think that's not something that when we started out the podcast, we would have wanted to do. That it was much it made much more sense to read Pragmatism, the small book, to read essays by people. And so I think a couple of years ago we decided we could do something like Augustine's Confessions and do two straight episodes on it and not just do a chunk of it. Whereas like when we tried to do Being in Time long ago, well, we just picked, you know, we're going to do the very beginning. And people still want us to go back and do more Being in Time. Maybe we'll do that just like we did for Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. So I think our appetites have enlarged. We figured out a way that we can cover longer books. And these longer books that are not primarily philosophy, because of our format, we really can have a single session or two sessions and do okay with them. There are other things, even in what we pick to read about the wealth of nations that we were talking about, like that we could have had a further session on uh, and doing that second session with Russ Roberts fulfilled some of that, but that didn't get us to look at the sections that we didn't talk about so much the first time that more was just an, an independent, interesting follow-up to probe his thoughts and bounce things off him and, chase down a few tangents, not a way of getting more of the straight economics stuff out of it. That's one of the things. And then one of the other things is just, I think, because of the success of the strictly political episode that started off last year really was a very spontaneous thing. And then that was successful enough. Like, I think a lot more people listened to that than had listened to the surrounding episodes that we determined that we should try to do something in the politics or popular culture area every few episodes. And I know Wes kind of wanted to make it more formal than some of the rest of us. Every fourth episode. (laughs) Film, (laughs) literature, politics, culture, something like one of those areas. I sincerely take Wes at his word that he was, if anything, he was being an opportunist, preying on the willingness (laughs) of everyone else because he's been wanting to do that for a long time. True. I don't know if I'd heard that much discussion about doing more fiction earlier. I don't know. It does, I don't feel like we we turned down a lot of uh, ideas in that vein. Am I wrong? Well, I, yeah, I was never pushing ideas exactly. And I mean, I think I've done been a lot more active this year in trying to push an agenda. So there have been past years when I tried to open things up like, let's do... So I, I had I'd thought out, I posted a thing on Facebook about this. Somebody accused me of trolling them with this idea of getting them excited over nothing. And the, and the idea had never happened. But when I was uh, of doing Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon in particular. And so I kind of did an episode's worth of research and even got a guest. I agree to that. Yeah, I'm not sure. It just other things preempted it at the time and then it kind of fell off. The radar. It's not that people slam these ideas down. It's just other things somehow become more urgent and interesting. But you know, the idea of doing a classic album like that, that has a lot of philosophical intent behind it, I think still makes sense. I'd also propose doing the Sandman comic book series, which is quite long. <laughs> and so I started reading it from the beginning, but I kind of didn't get far enough into it. And uh, 
again, other things kind of intervened. I think that we've, we've had other discussions of wanting to do something with Neil Gaiman's work, whether it be that or now he has a TV show or just because he's become a much more pervasive cultural force even since I proposed that episode. What are some other things that, like those ideas that, either ideas you have now or that you recall bringing up in the past or just say other things we can tempt the audience with. Wes, do you want to get into Joan Didion or something? or what? How, how did that come about? I thought somebody wrote something about Joan Didion. Maybe it was a brain pickings thing. Yeah. As soon as you mentioned it, I began to see her name in the news, like all over the place. It's just one of those <laughs> yeah. synchronicity kind of things. I watched the Joan Didion documentary that was on uh, Netflix, Wes. Oh, I haven't done seen by Griffin that. Dunn. Oh, you haven't? No. Hmm. Here's something I thought of. Last night, my wife and I watched a movie called The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is apparently another in a series of absurdist films starring Colin Farrell. This one had Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman. The same director did The Lobster. The Lobster, yes. Yeah, which was nothing like what I expected it to be. I hated that movie. <laughs> I went on a date to see that movie, actually. Oh, that was that not was... a date movie. That was not a date movie. The trailer made you think it was a date movie, though. I, know. I went thinking yeah. that, oh, it's going to be charming and quirky and not have a vile murder of a dog in it. Yeah, some kind of weird, pessimistic take on human relationships as well. Like the, oh, yes. the whole idea of people having things in common. So it was about dating. In a way, it was a... It wasn't just not a date movie. It was an anti-date movie. It was. (laughs) Anyway. Sorry, Seth. No, no, no. It's the same director and the same concept, I guess. I don't even care about spoiling things for people because this is not a movie podcast. In (laughs) essence, uh, this is a modern spin on Agamemnon's sacrifice of Iphigenia, except it's just not well done. But in watching it, I was like, what is... This killing of a sacred deer, what is it? I was like, okay, so he's going to have to sacrifice one of his children. And I was like, I better know which one's going to be. So I look up online and, you know, I see it's a reference to Iphigenia at Aulis by Euripides, which was supposedly the ending of which was written by somebody else. Oh, I've seen that play live. That must be amazing because, I mean, you guys know how I feel about the Oresteia and the whole arc. Anyway... It came through all this, and I thought, oh, I remember when P.L. used to do these dramatic readings with famous people of ancient Greek plays that nobody gives a shit about. And I was like, we need to do more of that. So if you want to talk about what I would like, I want to bring Lucy and Paul and whoever else we can get our hands on, and we need to read some of these dramatic Greek plays, and we need to dig into some of these deep-seated... Okay, can I just tell you how pissed off I was? I can't. Before you say that, I totally second that I, with the Greek plays. I love third it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. More of that, because there's gold and then there are hills. And well, I'll give an update on that after you're done with telling your story. Go ahead, Zach. All right. No, no. I was just going to say, one of my favorite, favorite things, when I was young and I was imbued with the spirit of learning and, and all that, was the character of Clytemnestra in mm-hmm. the first of the three series Re- of the Oresteia, Agamemnon. Agamemnon, and the way in which she is just violently strong and angry at her husband for the choice he has made. And, you know, it was worth delving into the different translations to see the tone of the interpreter, you know, the translators about how they interpreted it. She's one of my favorite characters ever. 
And one of the things when I was watching this film and simultaneously, you know, Googling this about the idea that there's this deus ex machina where Artemis comes down and actually saves Iphigenia and substitutes a deer to be sacrificed, you know, totally absolving Agamemnon of his guilt and completely taking all of the tragedy out of the play and all of the pathos and all this pissed me off. I mean, I was just furious, furious at a movie that forced me to read a synopsis of a play that was written 2000 plus years ago, made me angry, you know, while I was half drunk sitting on my couch. That's the kind of experience that I would like to get out of BEL. You want to be made angry. I want to be moved to emotion, yes, I guess, in some respect. I'm just associating to being in high school and finishing Tess of the D'Urbervilles by uh, Thomas Hardy. She gets, mm. spoiler alert, she gets hanged at the end of the book. I remember throwing that book across the room <laughs> <laughs> in anger. So, yes, if something moves you to damaged property, then um, the author has done, <laughs> done a good job. Uh, not necessarily, because I had the same reaction with uh, the Fountainhead. <laughs> I had the same reaction with the Blue and Brown books. Really? Yeah. Wittgenstein, what are you well, talking about? Yeah. yeah. Why? Well, in all three cases, you guys threw the books across the room, but I feel like in all three cases, you threw them across the room for different reasons. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> Actually, Actually, mine is not across the room. It's at the bottom of... Uh, a little lake in the back of the Reed College campus. Wow. <laughs> and mine was an audiobook, so I couldn't actually throw it. it Mark just listened at, at, at three times the normal speed, and that was his. <laughs> <laughs> Keep pushing it faster. Make it end quicker. No, I, it was fine. I already vented about that. Just the, the update on the, the drama thing. So the, the Oristaya, I did read all of and think about proposing as an episode and when we had the Martha Nussbaum interview that the first chapter of her book was reference to the civilizing of revenge into justice, which is the theme of the third play in that series. So this is pretty close after we did Antigone and the birth of tragedy. I actually did a not school discussion with it, but only one person showed up and we had technical problems. It was such a lame discussion that I did not post it. And as a play, because I was kind of evaluating things in terms of what we want, like Lucy Lawless or somebody to read with us, it's not anywhere near as appropriate a format, just because the chorus sections are so freaking long by comparison to the ones in Antigone. So that was my reason for getting away from that. When we last talked to Paul and Lucy, we kind of all agreed, oh, we should do some Shakespeare. And so that's what was kind of in my mind of... Wes had brought up The Tempest, or they had brought up Macbeth at the time, I think, or Hamlet, I forget what. As I was thinking about that, I, I started thinking more about, like, well, those are not one-act plays. Those are freaking five-act plays. Those are way longer than anything we've done in the past. And I don't know that I want to be on tape reading Shakespeare. Like, I think <laughs> there's just so much precedence. It's not like people have heard a million <laughs> versions of Antigone that I'm going to be embarrassed to have that exist. But when a type of actor is called a Shakespearean actor, then having a bunch of freaking amateurs reading that out loud, like, what is the point of that? I don't see the point at all. So given that that was the idea that was the top of mind and I didn't want to do that, then I didn't pursue that for a long time. I know coming up here, we've talked about reading Pygmalion, but I don't think we had convinced ourselves yet that we wanted to do a performance of it, right? We're just going to 
perhaps read and talk about the play. Wes, or was that TBD? I forget. Well, the reason why we I argued against doing a performance is because, as you know, if you've seen My Fair Lady, the whole play is premised on the idea of transforming someone from one class into another class, but specifically by changing their accent. And so people would have to do different sorts of British accent. I suppose you could do it with different sorts of American accent, but in order to even make it make sense, you'd have to be doing a Cockney accent versus an upper-class British accent. And that's not where we want to go. She could do it. We can't. You don't think Lucy could do her New Zealand accent for the low class? <laughs> All the low class people talk with New oh Zealand accents. But then when they get civilized, then they're more straightforwardly Australian. No, no then they have American <laughs> accents. <laughs> because everyone who's civilized has an American accent, right, Mark? <laughs> Probably. No, English. She, she could do an awesome Brit accent too. Yes, although having her trainer have an American accent, but then she gets a British accent, that would make less sense. Although after we finish the no exit, uh, Jamie Murray suggested that I probably should have done it with a British accent because that's what she did. I guess maybe I should go redo it or something. <laughs> but I did not feel confident enough about that, nor did I want to put in the additional effort to read the whole thing in a different way. See. This is the thing. I think the performance of the play is kind of like the precog, sort of like the summary. Like, I don't worry so much and get caught up about that. It's just the experience of reading it and, and then talking about it that makes me excited. I do think that Mark's point about some plays are so famous, have been done so many times. <laughs> One of the nice things about doing the ones that we have done is that they just don't get read very often. I mean, it's not like they don't exist, but reading it aloud is a way of bringing it to the people. That's not true for Hamlet. No, no, of course not. I mean, we should definitely do the frogs rather than Macbeth. Maybe we should just read through Rent. You know, we should do it. (laughs) We'll just kind of hum the songs. That's the kind of thing the culture does not need us doing. Maybe that's our next side podcast. It's a two-to-force reading by not particularly talented voice actors of the entirety of the ancient Greek canon. No? Well, we know enough professional actors now. Like, I did actually think about having as a spinoff podcast, just kind of producing more of these read-throughs, but just the legal issues surrounding it, it's already kind of... We're not getting permission from anybody to read these particular translations, and I'm surprised nobody has objected at all, but I guess it's not a big enough deal. If it was a standalone product... And uh, month after month, we're either having to deal with rights issues or, or just flagrantly <laughs> going in the face of that. I, I did not want to deal with that. But I, there's so many actors we've run in over the, into over the years. And then the friends of the actors that we get, friends bringing on friends and stuff. I, I think we could get a pretty consistent, varied cast of people who are more talented than we are to <laughs> prop up such a thing. But I'm not going to do that. <laughs> somebody, somebody else wants to volunteer to run that kind of thing. I'd be happy to contribute. So I, I remembered why I was thinking about Joan Didion. So on Brain Pickings, Maria Popova wrote an article called Joan Didion on Learning Not to Mistake Self-Righteousness for Morality, which of course is kind of related to the acts I'm always grinding. So the quotation at the top is, when we start deceiving ourselves into thinking not that we want something or need something, but that it is a moral imperative that we have it, then is when we join the fashionable madmen. 
yeah, it's an interesting little essay on Joan Didion and her essay called On Morality, which is in the collection of her essays called Slouching Towards Bethlehem. And of course, that's the name of another of her essays. It's about our tendency to mistake for morality what is what Didion calls monstrous perversion. And this whole question of and it's interesting because we're reading Mill right now and he has similar things to say about this. And some of this came up in the Spinoza episode, but it's the moment when we're most sort of morally certain or impassioned about something, which I think in a way is the most dangerous, the place in which we're most prone to error. So I thought just because I had seen that post by Popova and I had always wanted to read Didion, but I really haven't. And I thought that theme was sort of up our alley, especially given the kinds of stuff we've read this year. That's why I suggested it. And that's another one that we all agreed on, and I think even maybe tentatively slotted in the schedule, but something else intervened that particular week. And now, I don't know, it's not even at the top of the list right now, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of what we discussed recently. It's just typical. I'm sure we'll do it, but who knows exactly when. That'll be in 2031, if you guys are, uh, (laughs) listeners are interested. I do have, in looking at the episode list here, Mala Branch is number 16. That doesn't mean 16 episodes from now that'll happen. I'm just saying. What would we learn from Mala Branch at this point? Something about occasionalism, right? There's a very well-known text. He's come up as kind of a side issue. Yeah, when we were doing Spinoza again, I think I even proposed, like, let's do Mala Branch right after that because it's basically the same time period, the same neo-Cartesian stuff. When you're in the thick of a particular area, then you're like, oh, we got to read the five other things directly related to this. But as soon as two more episodes go by and you haven't done that, then it seems less pressing. Mm. That's at least the story for me. So it goes on the list and some of them then hang around on the list for a long time until there's some other reason to do it. Or, you know, that I just by fiat, I think we only actually did Adam Smith because I just said, okay, we're doing Adam Smith next. (laughs) Like That was on the list for years. And it seemed yeah. dreadful, just like Das Kapital. I was never excited about doing that. Yeah, so Das Kapital is now the next in that slot that we're not that eager to do. We're going to wait a little while. <laughs> hmm. You're describing a kind of curing that happens on the list. Curating. I think he's talking about some alcoholic process of maturation. Is that what you mean? Uh, well, or, or uh, the beautiful slow rotting of fine meat. <laughs> 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 the further fermenting of delicious vegetables. So this is curation. It's not curing or curation. It's curation. <laughs> Let me tell you one that is an idea that I've thrown out fairly recently and I've been embroiled in and still kind of going back and forth whether she'd have an actual episode on it is my daughter tried out for You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, the musical. And she asked, hey, can we get some Peanuts comics so I can kind of read up on this? And I had not thought of that for a long time you know, Peanuts was my favorite thing when I was really, really little. And so I took the opportunity to start reading the complete editions from the beginning, from 1950 on. Yeah, so I'm up to about 1966 or seven. I'm not sure if I'll, it might be like my attempt to watch all the Doctor Whos where I got through like the first two Doctors and then stopped. (laughs) I couldn't spend more time on that at that particular time. So I might crash and burn here once it becomes clear that like no more innovation happens ever if there's a point where that reaches. But, you know, from the start when I was then putting this effort into this and there is a Peanuts and Philosophy book that I bought and there's several books about Peanuts and religion 
and have been struggling with, could this be a legitimate episode? Certainly people have written lots of essays about it. It contains existentialist themes. That's like pushing the boulder up the hill is like trying to kick the football every year and just you know, feelings of dread. There's so many things you can read into it. But at the same time, like reading an interview with him, he clearly did not know much about philosophy. He had some religion background. He, as a young person, actually preached on the street very briefly. But by the time that he was doing the comic after he'd been in the war and he was not that serious and he certainly wasn't trying to shove ideas down anybody's throat and really was surprised when people would find all this hidden philosophical meaning and the way that he would throw around what philosophical content in there is not all that different than what you'd seen in Monty Python where you get the philosopher's football, like the kind of drawing on a certain common culture, which is of course not the same set of cultural references for Schultz as for Monty Python, but that a character has to appear smart every once in a while. And so they'll say something, <laughs> but I was talking about that to Wes and Wes didn't seem to care about that. Right. Cause we had the kind of this, it doesn't matter what the author thinks. Do you want to elaborate on that Wes? Do you want to get into that? So this is something we should actually do an episode on, on the interpretation more, you know, it would fall into line with our other interpretation episodes. But yeah, for me, I don't think authorial intent is as important. So for instance, when we did our episode on Vertigo, and if I want to say something about what the bra in the movie is a metaphor for, it doesn't matter to me whether anyone, whether a writer or the director or anyone else, whether they actually thought the bra was a metaphor for anything. I think some people comfort themselves with the notion, well, unconsciously, you know, they, if an author didn't do that symbolic thing consciously, then they probably did it unconsciously. But I don't even think that matters. And for me, it doesn't matter in the same sense as I don't think the meaning of dog depends upon the intention of any particular language user. In the same way, I don't think the subtext of a text, its broader thematic meaning, depends upon the intention of the author. In the same way that the language community determines the meaning of a word, you know, even if someone misuses it, doesn't know what the word dog means and misuses it, that doesn't change the meaning of the word dog. I think in the same way, interpretative community determines whether or not bra is actually a metaphor for something in a film. And there's a kind of structuralism here. So if it fits in a way, part of it is just sort of a, maybe a coherentist theory as well. So if a movie is in some way about being able to be supported or stand tall, and if there's this talk of some sort of supportive garment that is typically associated with females, but happens to be worn by the male in the movie. And even if that never occurred to anyone, I mean, thematically, it's all right there. And it just is what it is, regardless of the intent of the author. I want to agree with you almost completely, but with a, a couple qualifications. One being is that it, it sounds a little bit too far to say that what the author intends doesn't matter at all especially if the author explicitly intended something, right? I mean, you can easily have a case where part of that community of interpretation is the author themselves. So it doesn't seem quite right to say that that doesn't matter. Well, some authors are better interpreters of their own work than others. But I think as part of the creative process, they try to tend to put aside any conscious. And that's why I think, Mark, you'll find in interviews with not just... Schultz, but any author, they might poo-poo some of the interpretive stuff people do, because I think as an author, you can't sit there and think, and now I'm going to insert a piece of symbolism into the text, and this is what it's going to mean. That would be ruinous to the actual quality of what you're doing. It has to happen organically, and 
from the standpoint of the creative process, I think it has to happen largely, or at least in part unconsciously. I think at some stage of editing or something, you, you might become an interpreter of your own text and then enhance certain themes or something like that. It also doesn't seem quite right to say that there isn't something that the author would have intended. But they might be wrong, though. I don't disagree with that, but I don't disagree with the idea that the author, either on sort of explicitly interpreting their work, or even the idea of talking about what it seems like the author meant when they wrote the work, those all seem like valid questions. It just doesn't seem like it's the only set of questions that you would ask on it. And that in particular, I mean, to me, the salient point of what you're saying is that you can't legitimately negate an interpretation of a work by saying that, well, the author never intended that. Yeah, so I think that's the main point I'm making. But I'm also saying that the right interpretation trumps the author's interpretation. (laughs) The author could be completely wrong. There could be a truth in matter about an interpretation of the text, which completely contradicts the author's intention. So, for instance, you know the Who song Squeezebox? It's like taking yep. uh, double entendre to the limits. Mama's got a squeeze box. Uh, when Daddy comes home, he never gets no rest. Daddy never sleeps at night. <laughs> and so, you know, Squeezebox accordion, Squeezebox something else. So I thought, what if someone, some completely naive person, you know, this would be a great skit or something. Somebody writes a song full of double entendre, doesn't know that they're doing it, does it all unconsciously. Will Ferrell accident. Exactly. They have a completely different interpretation of the text than the audience who's just laughing their asses off hearing this. But the audience, of course, is right. And even if you reject all Freudian theories or any psychology of the unconscious, so the person on stage who's doing their song, who naively doesn't understand the double entendre of it, you don't have to appeal to, oh, well, they did this, they meant this unconsciously, and blah, blah, blah. You don't have to save it in that way. You can just say, the double entendre is actually there in the text, and they don't get it. So I recall us kind of disagreeing on this way back in our episode 16, our first aesthetics thing, where Seth was saying that he does not watch the behind-the-scenes featurettes and the DVDs and things. So that yeah, was a prompt I, Seth to say something. No, no, I, I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I had something I was trying to interject earlier. I've lost the pithiness of what I was going to say, but... The point is, is that, of course, it matters what the author intended, but it's not a question of the author's intent doesn't matter and the right interpretation is right, regardless of whether or not somebody intended it. The point is, is that authorial intent doesn't carry the weight of authority or authenticity in such a way that it can dictate. Like, you can't say, I made this to be this. I meant this to be this. And if it means something else in the culture, then so be it. It doesn't mean we discount the fact that that's what you intended as the author. And so my experience of art, and this goes back actually a long way. We had this conversation a while back where we talked about how with modern art, when we did the Danto episode, I think, you know, we were talking about needing to be educated about what was happening at the time and the art world and the trends. And can you have a an aesthetic experience that is divorced from the historical context of the work as well as the authorial intent and how authorial intent was so much more important now, at least in 20th century non-representational art and responding to these different trends and themes, you know, what we were trying to accomplish, you know, Warhol and so forth. So I just think that when I say that authorial intent, I don't say it quite the same way where I say it doesn't matter. What I mean to say is 
it's not the thing that determines whether an interpretation is right or wrong. Yeah, so I think uh, we should maybe ask listeners at this point, maybe what would we read for an episode on authorial intent? What would you like to see us read and discuss? So. What I would love to be able to read is both some essays talking about it, but ideally would be to read some work of fiction where the question of authorial intent looms large as an interpretive question for the text itself. I don't know of such a text. Maybe our audience, someone does, but it seems like there must be some text or group of texts that this weighs. I mean, the place where it comes up in philosophy most often has to do with the relative political or ethical positions of the authors that we read and how much it comes forth in their text, either in the, the way they live their lives or maybe their side comments or some streak of various kinds of prejudice or bigotry that come in and whether that, how that should be weighed on other parts of their text. It's a slightly different issue, I admit, but to me, it's a similar kind of thing about whether the ethical and moral character of the author affects or infects the final product of their work. And whether we can be contaminated by it. Yeah. We read a book by, who's a good example? I'm thinking of literature, but if we wanted to do philosophy, it would be Heidegger, of course. But, you know, we read Being in Time, and then the question is whether Heidegger's Nazi predispositions are going to uh, corrupt us or, or sort of determine part of the gist of the text. And so if we, in some sense, are persuaded by something in the text, you know, maybe there's something to Dasein, which is fascist, let's say, or something like that. I mean, certainly that is something that people worry about a lot right now with, you know, for instance, Louis C.K. being one of the people accused of sexual harassment. The immediate reaction was to eliminate all his stuff from from uh, streaming platforms to make sure that we are not contaminated by the work of a... Uh, a sexual monster. A sexual monster. Alive. That's right. Is that what they said about Louis C.K.? Yes. Who said that? Saturday Night Live News. Okay, I remember that. You guys, by the way, have to see the new Chappelle specials. He's fantastic. If we ever did an episode on stand-up comedy specials, it would be Chappelle's for Netflix, which are profound in some ways. Mm. So the question for me has been, as we've been opening ourselves up to these other formats, specifically film, with the two episodes that we did so far this year, is what are we doing? What exactly are we talking about? And that's why you know, when we got to do Blade Runner, like, are we just going to talk about the new movie? And so it seems like you St. John's people don't have any problem with this. You could read anything or view anything, whatever, whatever the medium is, and still have the same kind of St. John'sy discussion. But because that was not the way I was approaching our past voyages into literature, that we did No Country for Old Men with an essay by a philosopher next to it. We did Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, looking specifically for the philosophy as presented in it. That was my agenda before, and I've opened to changing my expectations that I, I don't want to necessarily take the piece of literature and just jot down the outline of the actual philosophical claims involved. But the question is, what is it then we are doing? What did you think you, we were doing when we did Blade Runner? I, it was at your suggestion, well, we, we all agreed to it, that we would read the book as well. And so we all had seen both movies and we all had read the book and we ended up talking a lot about the book. So I'm interested about your own experience on that. 
and what you thought of that conversation and how that went. I mean, that went fine, partially because, again, I've pulled myself away from having to say, what exactly is Philip K. Dick's philosophy and, and try to chart that in terms of, is he closer to an existential, you know, trying to put him in the canon or something like that. I'm not trying to do that anymore. And as long as there was text, then I didn't have a problem. But because, you know, I like movies, I watch a lot of movies, I've seen a lot of movies over the years, and I think I appreciate the filmic aspects of them, not in the same degree to which I appreciate all different aspects of music. I know that doing a nakedly examined music type discussion of a work would not be appropriate, and I don't know enough about film to have that kind of discussion, I feel like. I'm bringing this up as a contrast because the way Wes was putting it, it's just talking about what is the meaning of the work. And maybe that is kind of how we came down when the Blade Runner kind. When I'm talking to a musician about their oeuvre and about three songs in particular, the meaning of the work is often not brought up at all. It really depends on what the particular artist's view of what the work is trying to do. Is it trying to present some ideas? And we can talk about the ideas that it's trying to present. And I definitely do agree that authorial intent is not the end of the story. And in fact, I have trouble with some of my interviewees because they think that I'm just asking them you know, tell me exactly what you were thinking when you wrote this lyric 20 years ago. And they're like, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what this means. Often this doesn't mean anything. And so I have to even sometimes state baldly, which can be a little contentious, like basically other people's opinions of what you meant matter too, which is a strange thing (laughs) when you're in this position. Yeah of interviewing somebody who is a famous person often and they're nice enough to do this <laughs> and I want to somehow convince them that I should get to talk because right. I have something to say and I guess I haven't gotten enough listeners to that podcast for them to say, Mark, why don't you shut up more and let them talk? Like I, I do, but I try to make it interactive in the same way that our discussions here are and that usually goes over very well. They usually appreciate that. A lot of it is, if I'm talking about even the sort of theories that I'm putting forward, might be comparisons to other styles or just what that gesture makes me think of and like getting them to think about like, oh, why did you throw that little Latin riff in there? Are, were you into Latin music? What's going on? You know, trying to you know, illustrate that there really is more going on to a work than what they were actually thinking when they did it. And they often enjoy that too, because they can be then post hoc listeners of their own stuff. But that's very different than what I would want to do on PEL with anything. All right, folks, that's all you get. Unless you become a partially examined life supporter. Hey, and while I got you, just to complete a thought, the key word I was looking for in contrasting what Wes is looking to talk about in an artwork as opposed to what I talk about in my music podcast with the artist. His primary concern is with the meaning of the work, whereas my primary concern is what effects were involved. What effect were you going for? What was the effect on the listener? There's a similar dynamic in that there could be plenty of effects that weren't exactly intended. Maybe what the artist intended wasn't actually what came out, but it's a broader term. I like it better. An effect could be that a meaning was impressed upon you but you could be affected in all sorts of ways. And the word effect can refer to something in the object or something in you, the spectator. But enough of that. To hear the rest of the discussion, you can sign up for Partially Examined Life citizenship at partiallyexaminedlife.com support. The full discussion is right there. We talked for another hour. We got into what makes a good guest, some stories about people we've been chasing down or may or may not have in the show. Wes talks about his various film analysis projects. You get to hear about Planet of the Apes. We talk a little bit about the political turn that we took this year. Specifically, I got into the planned follow-up for the American Indian philosophy episode that didn't quite happen. 
and the complaints we got about that episode, why would you not go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support or patreon.com slash partiallyexaminedlife to get the full version of the discussion right now? You can just skip right to the middle then. Thanks in any case to everybody for your listening through 2017.